Every so often, you meet someone who's managed to become an expert in something so obscure and so wonderful that you can't help but feel impressed by how absorbed they've become, how far they've wandered down such an unusual rabbit hole. This is the second part of my interview with Mohammed Ghassan Nouria, who is exactly that kind of man, the only man in the world who, several centuries after the practice ended, mastered the craft of making purple dye the Phoenician way. This involves a long process, which begins with crushing a large amount of murex sea snails and extracting a gland which produces a purple pigment. For the ancient Phoenicians, Tyrian purple was by far their most valuable export. In the previous episode, Gassan told us how important purple dye was for putting the Phoenicians on the map, and the Phoenician literally means purple people. Welcome back for episode four. My name is Charlie Mannix Beale, and you are listening to the Phoenicians Before Columbus podcast. Join me each episode where I'll be taking a fresh look at one of history's greatest but most forgotten about civilizations. What do you do when you develop a niche obsession? What responsibility comes with being the bearer of ancient wisdom? And has the purple dye producing one man band managed to continue his work during the coronavirus lockdown? In this episode, I find out how purple dye has changed Gassan's life, how his dad saved his marriage, and he tells me exactly what makes the Murex purple so special. Gassan, in the last episode, you explained the production process to me, and it sounds like a real commitment on your part. Have you had to make many sacrifices, and, and how do your family handle your obsession with this? <laughs> okay, very good question. Well, at the beginning of 2007, uh, in September 2007, when I started making my first experiments, it was just one month after my honeymoon. I was newly newly married, and um, uh, we lived in a small apartment, and uh, I brought my first batch of these sea snails uh, to the apartment one night, and I started processing them. The 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 the, color, the, the smell was was simply horrifying so my, my 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 wife was 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 completely disgusted and and uh, in her in her words like it was like okay you have to choose either me or the snails uh, i won't stay with them in the same apartment so yeah it's it's really it was really hard in the first yeah the first days were very hard because uh, i was discovering the smell is very very strong and very pungent so at the end my father had the kindness of of, of, of giving me a, a small shed in his in his garden and he told me okay there there's a tap in there there's gas stove there's there's everything you need just save your marriage and go and do everything you have to do there so this is how I started really uh, making lar- larger scale experiments you know it was it was away from everyone it was in the garden nobody was bothered so I could really do it the way I really wanted without having anyone complaining about the smell etc but of course, uh, nothing comes without sacrifice. Uh, I had to sacrifice a lot of my time. Uh, I spent like countless hundreds of weekends and and bank holidays and completely confined in my workshop. Uh, it wasn't easy. 
quite demanding. But I had my share of failures too, sort of, especially in the first two or three years, uh, I have uh, failed a lot more than I succeeded. But there was always this driving force. As long as you know that one, at some point, you'll get it right. And, uh, and then when you get it right, you keep wondering about the next color and the next and next and the next. So this curiosity really drives you to, to continue working. And of course, the importance um, uh, uh, of, the, of the history of this die, the historical importance of this die, and how deeply it is embedded in my cultural heritage and my, my identity is also one of the driving forces that really uh, um, gives me the patience and the determination to, to go on and on and on. And when you see the admiration of, from all over the world uh, uh, in my Facebook page or, or, or in any, in any other uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Instagram page, etc. of all these people from all over the world wondering where, how you can get these views and how beautiful these views are and, and uh, wow, what an... About the, talk about this, the great importance of reviving these uh, old, forgotten, long forgotten views and colors. It really also adds a set of responsibility on my shoulders. And I would say, okay, these people really uh, are, are looking up at your work and, and they, they really admire this this work. So this is really a cultural and historical uh, uh, responsibility as well. So this is really what keeps me going. You and I were speaking about the coronavirus situation in Tunisia recently. How has this affected your purple dye work? Have you still been able to get specimens? I currently am not able to go to the to the fishing harbor, of course, sure. because of the confinement. So it's not possible to get fresh snails. But I already have a substantial stock of, of of dried glands and pigments, so I can I can still dye. I, I do it like uh, once every two weeks. I go to my to my workshop that is nearby, and uh, I, I still uh, dye using the dried pigments or the the dried glands or, or the pigments themselves. So it's still possible to dye. I, I do it all the time. Uh, it's just that I'm just make sure not to use. Uh, large amounts of pigments uh, because I always need to keep uh, some, some like um, a fair amount for my demonstrations presentations and exhibitions etc uh, so ideally I, I need to have a constant supply of fresh snails um, to keep on the dying but in these specific circumstances uh, I, I, I I like to die once every two weeks and uh, use a small amount of dried glands or pigments just for practice. Now I know that it's very important to you that you pass these ideas and practices on to the next generation. When did you start giving workshops to young people about this and what kind of an impact do you think they have? Of course I do that. Uh, I've been doing workshops and exhibitions since 2015. Uh, I started doing them in museums. Um, it was a huge success. Like people, first they started uh, making the connection and wondering what is the connection between these colors and the seashells. So when you start explaining the process, people are in just in disbelief because nobody would, in his right mind would expect such beautiful colors to come from, from a sea snail. So that, when I see, it's funny when I see their reaction when I explained the process. I just remember how I first reacted in that history class and I thought that the teacher was, was just 
to tell them something that that is absolutely not true. So that was exactly the same reaction. But then you know when you explain it right the right way and when you when you when you when you give them historical references etc. Of course people end up believing you and, uh, and are in total admiration in front of the of this uh, of this process. And then I started making uh, making uh, workshops in schools with children. Um, generally, uh, it's history teachers that invite me for workshops or presentations, and it's a huge success. Like children really, really like it. And the, the good thing about it is that most children these days and teenagers really hate history. Not because history is boring, but because of the way history is taught. You know, it's very boring. You have to learn a lot of dates, let it learn, learn a lot of a lot of information without really understanding why. And uh, that was exactly this. The same thing that happened to me when I was a child or a teenager. I really hated history because of the way uh, it was. It, I have been taught history. So then, when I started working with children, um, when, when they first see me, they were oh, another history guy who would start to talk about boring history facts. So then I tell them, okay, we're not going to talk about history at all. We're going to do some painting, some dyeing, some colors, some, some I don't know what. So we're going to play with shells, etc. So they're very excited, and they start painting. They start making, uh, uh, helping me with the dye, etc. And then they would start asking questions. But, okay, these seashells are beautiful, and these colors are beautiful, but what's the relation between them? So then I start explaining the process. Okay, these dyes that you have just um, helped me uh, produce, and, and the paintings that you have been, the paint that you have been used, using in your paintings right now, uh, has been produced from these snails. And they, they, they start asking even more questions about how is that possible? And then when they understand the process, they're like, wow, did you discover that? No, it wasn't me. It was these guys called the Phoenicians. And then this is how I introduced history. They start asking me questions. All right, well, who are the Phoenicians? And then this is how I introduce history and start talking about Phoenicians. And then little by little, we start talking about Carthage and uh, and the beautiful history. And at the end, we we, uh, we 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 make a history course, but in the opposite way. Like we start painting and dyeing and playing with seashells, etc. Like anything, we talk about everything but history. And then at the end of the course, they find themselves in admiration in front of the history of Carthage and Phoenicia and Phoenicians, etc. So I, I really think that this is how history has to be taught these days. Uh, I really dream that someday history would be taught in laboratories, in, in universities and, uh, and schools, rather than being just uh, nothing more than a boring uh, course, because history is very rich. Uh, we still, we can still. Have, especially with the technological advance of these days, we can and progress these days. We can revive many of the ancient processes very, very easily. So why not teaching these children all of these ancient processes and help them make mosaics or paintings or whatever? And then this would this would be like a link between them and between their and their uh, and their uh, forgotten forgotten past uh, and history. These workshops are by far the most successful because children keep asking you questions, questions that you can, you have never imagined, uh, and uh, you have never expected. Sometimes, sometimes you don't have even the answers. So uh, it's uh, because children 
always ask all kinds of questions without thinking and it really enriches the discussions and uh, etc so I, I have been doing it for several years and I will keep doing it for as long as I live I think because it's, uh, it's very satisfying and I think it's a historical responsibility to get close to these children and who are in some way victims of this uh, of this um, standard and boring educational system so you really have to find a way to get close to them and to to, to bring them back to their history and to help them um, get close to their history again and um, and just be proud of who they are well that's an amazing thing when young people are really itching to find out more about history organically exactly exactly I think Really, this is very important that people learn more about their history because I really believe that if you don't have a history, you cannot have a proper future. So you really have to look back and be proud of, how, of who you really are. And this will help you become someone more confident and, uh, and uh, more able to, to, to face whatever challenge that, that you might face in your life. I'm curious about the characteristics of the dye. You mentioned that Unlike most other dyes, its colour actually becomes more vivid in the sunlight in, instead of fading. Why is this? Okay, okay, yeah. So the uh, royal purple is very much similar to indigo. It's what we call from the class of vat dyes. Vat dye is a dye that is not soluble in water. You cannot use it. You can just you cannot just dissolve it in water and, and dye with it. You have to ferment it in a vat. So this is why we call them the vat dyes. It takes some time for them to, to be reduced back to their... To their soluble form. So Tyrian purple or royal purple or whatever you want to call it is very very similar to indigo. It's just the, the only difference between indigo and royal purple is the presence of what we of a small chemical compound called bromine. Bromine in nature is the precursor of the red and maroon colors. So when you add the bromine to indigo, you have red and indigo. This ends, you, so you end up having purple and violets. So this is the only difference between royal purple and indigo. It's just the presence of bromine, and bromine is very, very fragile in the uh, royal purple uh, uh, royal purple molecule. So we we call this uh, molecule dibromo indigo. So two atoms of bromine di two and bromo indigo bromine indigo, or we have monobromo indigo, only one item of bromine in 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 the, in the molecule. So if you have two item atoms of bromine, you will have more red. So you will end up having a red purple color if you only have one atom of bromine there we, we would call about monobromo indigo you will have less red so you'll have some red and some and more violet and more blue so you end up having violet you can imagine how many different compositions and combinations we can have by just blending and playing on, on on the composition of the dye and the dye is very sensitive to sunlight as well so when you ferment your dye and prepare it and become soluble again if you expose it to sunlight it it's the uh, Chances are that it will the UVs, the ultraviolets will will um, break the bond, the chemical bond between the bromine and the rest of the molecule, which disintegrate the reds. So you would end up having blue only or bluish violet. So you really you have to be very careful if you want to end up having reddish colors. You would have to avoid sunlight if you want to to get blue bright blue colors. Uh, it's recommended that you can that you expose your dye. To the sunlight for for a few minutes uh, for some time, uh, so that it will break the bromine, etc. So it's it's very fascinating. This you really have to be like a, a chemical at some point, a, a chemist at some point, and you really have to to know how to monitor the acidity 
of the uh, of the of the die and the temperature and you play with the light etc so it's very very uh very um, like uh, it's a quite complex complex process not at all easy with indigo it's much easier because you will only have blue anyway so it's it's fine but with terrain purple you really have to be very very cautious and very very uh, um, uh you, you pay a lot of attention to 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 the exposure to sunlight so that you wouldn't disintegrate this uh, this this precious uh, red red uh, red color that's inside and uh, speaking of the oxidation that we, that you asked me about earlier uh, as I said the precursor of the dye is is totally colorless like each gland produces only one or two drops of uh, of, uh, of this colorless liquid that is that has in the at the beginning uh, at first it really has the same consistency and structure as, as water it's it's very runny it's it's colorless etc but as as long as you expose to the air the oxidation starts and the the liquid starts to shift from colorless to yellowish to green blue and at the end purple so this process takes about 25 to 45 minutes depending on the the strength of the sunlight etc and uh, but it takes time and chemically speaking uh, the oxidation translates into the gain of an electron inside the purple dye molecule so when it's uh, when it's soluble when it's uh, when it's colorless uh, there's uh, there's a, a, a missing electron that makes it soluble and then when you expose to the sun and the air it gains an electron and this electron is the precursor of the development of the color so chemically speaking everything swirls around uh, this simple this single electron if you gain it you will develop the color if you lose it you will get back to your soluble form which is which is transparent or, or, or yellowish and this is really fascinating because and with with each workshop or presentation that i do this is by far the most magic moment of the whole presentation because you have your 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 dye bath that is yellowish or greenish then you, you put your yarn inside and you take it out and in, in, in a split of a second it just starts to to, to shift to to a, a deep red color or a deep indigo color or, or, or whatever and this is really really magic uh, uh chemically speaking so uh yeah pretty fascinating process but uh, speaking of chemi chemi chemistry uh of course i wasn't the the first the first one who had revived purple color after the fall of constantinople in the last 600 years there have been quite a few attempts in the last century starting from nine uh, 906 where a german chemist called paul um, friedlander decided to uh, make a research in purple dye and uh, to isolate the uh, molecule that was responsible for the color and uh, something that he managed to do in 1909 when he made an experiment using up to 12,000 uh, snails uh, from the Bolinus brandaris type and uh, he uh, from these from this amount he could produce 1.4 pure uh, dibromo indigo uh, uh, so this is the first documented attempt to revive the the uh, Tyrian purple and part of uh, Paul Friedlander's work is currently is still uh, ex exhibited in uh, the uh, uh, Dutch Museum of Munich to this day. Uh, after him, Joseph Dume, he made uh, experiments in Lebanon in uh, the late uh, 70s, early 80s. He 
even written a book about it. Uh, uh, and uh, there's also um, uh, my friend Inge Bosken. Uh, she's a painter, a German painter. He, she lives in France, and she, she's been uh, making paintings with uh, with uh, purple, Murex purple, for for several years, uh, for over twenty years now, or more, even more. So, yeah, there are a small circle of people that still experimenting with with Murex. There's another one in Japan, another one in uh, in, in Mexico, as far as I remember. So, I'm not the only one, but um, I have been continuously doing this for the last fourteen years which is not something that uh, you can easily find because most of the others, uh, other specialists who did it, um, it was mostly for a few experiments, uh, like lab experiments, and uh, and they've issued articles or publications, and that, this is it. But to me, it has become a way of life because I have learned so much from uh, from uh, from this from this guy. I have learned to a lot more about my my, my roots, my identity. Um, uh, I have learned. Um, I have made uh, connections with hundreds of people around the world from different areas, like biologists, historians, archaeologists, artists, um, uh, seashell collectioners. Uh, and it's a very, very rich and very impressive human human experience. Uh, you, you, the making of, of the dye itself had made me learn a lot of things, uh, like patience, attention to details. Uh, determination and really when you when you manage to do this you, you deep inside you have this feeling this growing feeling that ultimately nothing is impossible so uh, you can you can really do pretty much anything you want if you are willing willing to do it and if you are determined to do it and if you really believe in it so this really may changed my life in more ways than i could ever imagine more positively of course and uh i think that i will continue doing it for as long as there will be murex in carthage <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, you've been doing this for quite a while now. But is it easy for you to get hold of specimens? All right. So, I, as I told you earlier, there are three uh, smurex species that have been used uh, by the ancients uh, in the Mediterranean to to, prepare, to, uh, to produce a dye uh, over the over the three thousand four hundred years of the history of Tyrian purple. Uh, these are uh, murex trunculus, that is um, uh, a snail that produces a blue, violet, and also red purple. So this is the richest in terms of colors, the species the richest in terms of colors. And there are two other species, the Bolanus brandaris, that produces mainly or only red-purple colors, but in very, very small amounts. And the third one is Taisaimastoma, or blood mouth, that uh, produces also red-purple colors. So the the third one, the Taisaimastoma, lives in depth, like from 2 to 5 or 10 or 15 meters, it generally lives like in the foot of the cliffs or it sticks on, on, on rocks, etc. So uh, you can just pretty much pick them up. Uh, of course, you have to die and pick them up. Uh, for the two others, they live in um, more or less deeper waters, up to 140 meters deep. And um, the fishermen uh, just find them in their nets because these, smell, these uh, snails are quite spiky and they naturally get caught and trapped in the in the uh, fishermen's uh, nets. Uh, of course, they hate them because they dam heavily damage their nets. So they take them and they either throw them back to the sea or sell them to seafood restaurants, or they can eat them themselves. They generally grill them uh, on charcoal and, and, and eat them. 
so what I what I want to ask them to do is just to to gather like thirty or forty or, or fifty kilograms. We're dependent on the season, dependent on how how how, how many they could harvest on a particular day, and I'll just get them uh, from them uh, early in the morning. Um, for the third species, uh, I do not hire divers to pick them up on purpose to me, but I either buy them from uh, from uh, you know fish shops or uh, they are quite rare, but I can still find them. Um, so this is how I get I get my snails. And the interesting thing about it is because many people have said that okay, it, is it worth that you would really sacrifice these thousands of creatures or hundreds of creatures just to make, you know, a small drop of dye. So my answer is very simple. I, I, I never ask the fishermen or the divers to, 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 uh, to harvest these snails on purpose, just, just for me. Uh, it's, it's naturally trapped in their nets. So I, I, I just uh, buy what is naturally trapped in there and what they would otherwise sell to seafood restaurants anyway so and i eat the meat so this is something that um uh, i've been you know i've been eating murex for the last 10 years or so and my family likes it loves it very much uh and um uh, it's very healthy as i said and packed with vitamins and nutrients and um uh it's been part of our diet for the last 10 to 12 years um so we we eat it and uh and uh, also i Produce fish sauce out of the intestines of the uh, of the uh, murets as well, using a, um, a very old recipe for what they, the ancients called garum in antiquity, which was uh, a very expensive condiment that they produced by fermenting uh, the insides of specific varieties of, of of fish like mackerels and sardines and anchovies and salt and brine for several months under the sun. And it was a very, very expensive and uh, uh, kind of sauce. Uh, so I, 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 did, I do it, but using the insides of the murex um, instead. I also use the, um, the fragments of shells to fertilize the garden. It's a miraculous uh, uh, fertilizer for all kinds of soils. It's, um, it cuts the acidity of the soil. It's, um, uh, it's packed with potassium, with calcium. It's, uh, it's, um, it's packed with nutrients for the trees as well. Uh, how, did also... you, how did you discover that? Very good question. As I told you, I do all my experiments in a shed that my father had the kindness to, 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 to give me in his garden. So generally, when I, when I cook the meat and I get the diced stuff, etc., I'm, like, I'm left with a lot of shell fragments. So generally, I just throw them back to the sea because there are still some bits of, of flesh inside, and I would say that you know small crabs and other fish can can eat them, and so that they can I can re- reintroduce them again in the food cycle. Uh, or sometimes I just don't have the time, or I'm a bit lazy, so I would I would just put them, throw them. I just make a small pits in the garden and bury these uh, small uh, fragments inside and, and recover cover them with soil. So at some point, after a few weeks of doing that, I, 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 uh, I by, by chance, I, I noticed that this, that single spot in the garden where I, I dumped most of the sea fragment of the shell fragments, you know, that there was like a lot of grass and the tree was like, looked very healthy and it, uh, it has overgrown all the other trees in the garden. 
so it was it was like very very significant like when you see the difference between all the other areas in the garden and that particular spot just something just hit me so i made the connection between this and the shell fragments and then when i asked some specialists they told me yes because seashells are are packed with uh, calcium, potassium, and a lot of nutrients. And there are these small bits of flesh inside as well that can be turned into compost uh, over time. So it's very, very uh, nourishing for the soils and trees. So this is why how I started doing it in, in the garden. And then I realized that I can also bake these these uh, these uh, sea, um, shell fragments uh, at high heat. And, you know, the, these large... Uh, uh, pottery uh, ovens and, and furnaces. Uh, we can bake them at a thousand degrees until they can com they completely burn and they turn white, and then uh, you can turn it into lime. And uh, I I can produce very good quality lime out of these seashells that I can use again in the in the dye bath as an alkali. So nothing really nothing's really wasted. You can you can just you reuse the same shells. Uh, and produce lime from them and reuse them in your dye bath as, as your main alkali or your main base, which is absolutely miraculous because it's, it's, it's a closed circle and you, you have the dye, you have the shells, etc. And everything uh, will interact inside the, the dye bath to, to help you get these, these beautiful colors in a 100% natural way. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, this is, this is absolutely amazing because, and sometimes, you know, the workshop talking about speaking of workshops with the children, etc. from a single Mirax or from a single uh, variety of, of snails, I can do like five or six different workshops, like painting, dyeing, the making of lime, uh, making the fish sauce, gardening, uh, etc. So it's, it's absolutely amazing. And all from a small creature. Uh, so every, everyone benefits from this, uh, and I can only imagine what a blessing this creature was for the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians, because I'm pretty sure that they have uh, realized uh, much, you know, they realized all the benefits of this snail, and they would eat it, they would eat the, the meat. I'm sure that they would use the, the the shell fragments as well in a variety of activities. Uh, I'm sure they did. Uh, some kind of fish sauce out of it. I'm sure they they really uh, used it. Uh, used every single part of it. So it was such a, a blessing from one single creature. You can have a dye. You can have a paint. You can have some lime for for construction. You can have a fertilizer. You can have some food. You can have everything. So what what else can we ask for, honestly? Well, so many possibilities from one single animal. Gassan, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge. I'm certain that everybody listening will, will have learned something interesting. You can follow Gassan's work on Facebook. He shares some stunning pictures of dyed material, as well as some beautiful images of Tunisia. You can find links to Gassan's page in the description of this podcast. As always, thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends. And if you haven't done so already, please leave this podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts.